Alright, tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel according to John. Uh, last week I taught John 14, 1-6, and it was there that we took note of how Jesus comforted His disciples. And then when the clock told 7.45, we were studying John 14, 7-12. So before returning where we left off last week, let's... Uh, Let's use 1 John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and recognize that Your Word's not going to return to You void, but it's going to accomplish that which You please and prosper in the thing whereunto You have sent it. So help me to get the Word out. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're going to do some review, and then we're going to pick up a new material on page 4. But first, I want again to read a quote from Lewis Perry Chafer regarding the kingdom age, and of course when I say the kingdom age, uh, I have put a chart on the lesson plan for the people on the internet, but we have it on the board of course, uh, the kingdom age, right here when Jesus was on the face of the earth, and uh, of course He was presenting His his message to Israel. And here's what uh, Chafer has written. When reading a gospel, particularly Matthew, Mark, or Luke, one of the synoptic gospels, the church age believer must keep in mind to whom these books have primary application. And of course, that's Israel. According to the scriptures, all time is divided into dispensations. Due recognition of the essential character of each of these dispensations is the key to the understanding of the Bible. The fact of confusing the characteristics in each is common and is doubtless the greatest error into which many devout Bible interpreters fall. And I think uh, we in this church uh, understand that. And if you, I know uh, when we first got the idea of a podcast, my daughter said, be sure you put on the dispensation lesson first because without the dispensation concept, the idea, you can't understand the Bible. And I said, absolutely. That's true. Uh, and I don't know that uh, uh, most Christians know that. Uh, sad to say, which is why they live a life of taking your finger like I used to do and putting it down there. <laughs> That's what I'm going to teach Sunday school on, you know. But uh, it makes sense once you recognize dispensations. Alright, so a review again of the NIV of John 14, 7-12 I think is in order. So here we go. John 14, 7, reading through verse 12 from the International Version. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and you have seen Him. 
Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? These words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And uh, we are basically studying... uh, uh, we've gotten to the point where we're studying John fourteen twelve from the standpoint, or is that true? That people who believe in Him will do more miracles than Jesus did. And of course, some people take it as meaning, well, I can be an apostle and I can do miracles and so forth. But you have to remember, He's talking to His disciples who will become apostles. And so the question really is, Did the apostles do more and greater things as Christ said would happen than he did? And I think when you review what those apostles did, you come to the conclusion that absolutely they did some number of miracles. And there were many of them, as you know. Uh, The apostles, of course, 12 apostles are... The twelve disciples minus Judas Iscariot plus Paul. Alright, and then we started the doctrine of miracles. Introduction, point one. The age of miracles is not per se over, but the gift of miracles has vanished. And we've been over that on more than one occasion. Uh, there are miracles happening every day. Us just being alive in the devil's world is a miracle, but we'll speak to that more later, but uh, uh, we don't have the gift of miracles around anymore. You remember we talked about whip gifts. The colonel did an excellent job on that. And Lewis Perry Chafer, of course, originally did it. Uh, uh, he did a great job with the book entitled Grace, which uh, I have been blessed with the copy. And it is an excellent read. But it is complicated. By that I mean, Dr. Chafer did wonderful work, but he, uh, he would go on and on and on and on with the concept until you got it. I think it's called repetition, just like Isaiah said. That's how you learn. Alright, so the age of miracle is not per se over, but the gift of miracles has vanished. We must look to the scriptures for guidance with reference to miracles. Every heartbeat in the devil's world is a miracle. The sick being cured, the baby being born, the gospel being proclaimed, the word being taught, and many other mundane everyday occurrences are miracles in this the devil's domain. Should we therefore pray for the extraordinary? Answer, of course. Uh, and that's what the scriptures declare. 
Should we pray for extraordinary? Yes. And the mundane? Yes. And it's important for us to understand that by faith, and that's why it's important to pray and to recognize, as I noted tonight in our prayer meeting, that uh, sometimes we think, is this doing any good, you know? Well, by faith it is. You have to believe that it is because God said it. He said, pray for one another. Pray for our nation. And it's a marvelous thing that we can do. So we need to keep that in mind always. Alright, since the term miracle is popularly applied to unusual events... It is not easy to give the word miracle its true biblical significance. C.S. Lewis had the following to say uh, about a definition of miracles. He said it's an interference with nature by supernatural power. And then a guy by the name of Machen, J. Gresham Machen, in his book, The Christian's View of Man, said... A miracle is an event in the external world that is wrought by the immediate power of God. Alright, a miracle occurs when God does something beyond what could be accomplished according to the laws of nature as we understand them. And indeed may be in violation of those laws. Moreover, a miracle is that which is beyond man's intellectual or scientific ability. So as a biblical truth, our living in the devil's world is a miracle. Alright, our Lord in John's Gospel speaks to His disciples of His leaving and their responsibility as His representatives. John 14, 12, latter part of the verse, the Lord predicts in the future that we will do more miracles than He did during the kingdom age. So he's speaking to his disciples who will become apostles, who will later be spirit-filled. And of course, I want to answer the question, did they do just that? Alright, I'm going to read John 14, 12 again. Remember John 14, 15, 16, and 17, particularly 16. 17 is a pray, a prayer that he prayed. Jesus prayed for us, his disciples. And then by way of secondary application, us. But 14, 15, and 16 is when he talks to them, but I'm going to leave and here's what's going to happen. Okay, verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So let's begin our quest to determine just how many miracles the disciples who became apostles did, in fact. And the way to do that is to take a look at four Greek words that appear in the book of Acts, the Gospels, and the Epistles. Alright, and they describe supernatural works and miracles. And there are four Greek words, teros, semion, dumas, and ergon. So I have a wonderful book that I tried very hard to get the people who designed my Bible program to put that book. <laughs> it's, it has every Greek word 
that appears in the, the New Testament. And it says, tells you where that Greek word appears. And I know of no other book that does that. And I called them up and I said, hey guys, you really need to put that in. And they said, we can't sell that. <laughs> he says, most people don't give a darn about that. So, because they couldn't sell it, they didn't do it. But I still have the book. Tommy's uh, brother gave me that book. It's about that thick. So you can go and you, you can look at like I did. Those four words are teros, semion, dumas, and ergon. Alright, uh, so I looked in teros speaks of the extraordinary character in, for example, Hebrews 2.4, God also bearing them witness both with signs, and that word is in the Greek, semion, and wonders, and that Greek word is teros, and with divers miracles, and the word for miracles is dunamis or dunamis, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So that's what God did with His witnesses. He witnessed through them with these wonderful, as it says, signs, wonders, divers, miracles. Uh, and those are Dunamis, Semion, and Teros. Alright, now let's go to Point two, let's just take the word that teros, I just gave you an example of teros. And it's translated wonders in Hebrews 2.4. Alright, semion, often translated sign. You can see it's translated sign there in Hebrews 2.4. Symbolizes heavenly truths and indicates Christ's immediate connection with the higher spiritual world. And then also his apostles. Jesus warned the scribes they would get no sign except the sign of Jonah. And uh, Simon, Simon is often used with Teros. Alright, uh, Simon is used there in Acts 14.3. And we find the two words used. 14.3 where we have Teros used and Simon used to describe what Paul and Barnabas did. In other words, Paul was the twelfth apostle and he had a sidekick named Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas, says 14.3 in the book of Acts, spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who conformed, excuse me, confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous Semion and Teros used together. So they did many, many miracles. And then their word dunamis, where we get a word dynamic, it's usually translated power, powers, or can be, depends on how it's used, can describe an exercise of divine power and demonstrates the fact that higher forces have entered into and are working in this lower world of ours. Acts 4.3, and with great power, dunamis, gave the apostles, plural, witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Again, all this documenting how these guys did indeed do things, more things, in fact, than Jesus did. Because they were many and Jesus was one. 
Alright, and Stephen, full of faith and power, dunamis, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Remember, he was the first deacon. And he went over and did so many miracles over there in Samaria that they sent John over with his sidekick, Peter. And they went over to see if it was really true that this guy could do all these things. And they went over there and yes. And then they took over and started doing a lot more miracles. Because Stephen had something to do. He was supposed to go see one man. And I always say he... He had a wonderful ministry going and God the Holy Spirit said, but I want you to leave your wonderful ministry and I want you to go see one man. Go down there to the road to Damascus, uh, to, to Egypt, on the road to, to Egypt uh, and places south, often called the road to Damascus. Uh, but it just means a southern road. But anyway, he went to the Gaza Strip and uh, I don't know what he did, whether he got him a soda water can, uh, excuse me, soda water case as we used to do. We'd turn it up on the side and sit on it and shoot the bull. But, uh, waiting for somebody to come by, you know. Uh, and the guy comes by and you remember the story. He's reading the book of Isaiah and he, and we would say he got in the car with him, but he jumped on the back of the buggy or whatever it was, a chariot and says, you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless somebody teach me? He said, I'll teach you. So he taught him. And that was the guy who went on down into Numidia, as it was known then, in the northern part of Africa. and He was the treasurer. And uh, he had a great Christian nation, if you will, as a result of that one man. So he did his job. But I wonder how he felt when he left that wonderful ministry. For he was a top dog. Alright, so and with great power gave the apostles witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now that Stephen, full of faith and power, Acts 6, 8, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And when it says great wonders plural and miracles plural, how many were those? I dare say many. Alright, then Peter opened his mouth, Acts 10, 34, reading through verse 38. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That work I say ye know which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with dunamis power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And of course the whole story there in 10 is when Peter went along with Paul down to see James and others, Silas included, and uh, to speak Barnabas what he had done. He went in and witnessed to some Gentiles. So it was a momentous event when James said, well, I see it's working with Gentiles, so I'm going to give you my blessing. And he wrote a letter saying it's okay to take the gospel to the Gentile. And that, of course, 
was a powerful thing for Peter to do because Peter had been abused by Paul because he had he had sided with the legalists who came from Jerusalem against Paul and Barnabas and uh, you'll know you remember the story we studied the book of Acts and then in chapter 11 he has to defend himself Peter has to defend himself for speaking up in the meeting with James. It's just interesting. And then we don't hear much from Peter after that until he starts writing first and second Peter. Alright, now Romans chapter 15 verse 13 translated power is dunamis. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then Romans fifteen nineteen, when Paul went to witness to the people in Rome, he was a little concerned that uh, they had already gotten the message and he was a Jew and the Romans were Gentiles and somebody had been down there. Most think it was Peter who had been down there and started witnessing to them. But he's very careful how he, and I would encourage you to read that chapter 5, uh, excuse me, 15, it shows how, and read it in the NIV, how he was very careful to let them know that he's a Jew, and I know you people have already understood a lot of stuff. He said, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to come down here and force this down your throat. I'm just here to tell you. And this is one of those verses where he says, through mighty signs and wonders, miracles, by the power. Signs and wonders are one of those, those words. Say, Myon and Teros, and by the dunamis of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout into Lyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He's like telling them what he did. And he did, I don't want to, I don't want to get and step on the toes of anybody who's been down here and witnessed to you. Just want to tell you what I did. He was very careful there. You read that and you understand he was being very careful what he said. That he didn't offend them like you don't know. You Gentiles don't know and I'm a Jew and I'm here to tell you some more stuff. He said, I'm just going to tell you what I did. It's very interesting, chapter 15. Romans 5, 13 and 19. We use that word dunamis. I'm just pointing out words now. That's the purpose of this, not to teach each verse. Alright, 1 Corinthians 2, 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Dunamis is the word translated power. Then in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, Truly the signs of an apostle uh, were wrought among you in all patience in signs, say Maya, used twice, and wonders, which is teros, and Mighty deeds and deeds is dunamis. So we have these records of miracles breaking out all over, just as Jesus said they would. And then there's a word that's very often used just for work, but can refer to miraculous deeds which Christ came to do. And it is less often used of a supernatural event, a miracle. Alright, let's turn to Romans fifteen, eighteen. I've read 
15.13. Now let's look at 15.18. It says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Here's how he's being very careful. In the NIV, where it starts with which Christ hath not wrought, the NIV says, What Christ has accomplished through me in leading Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. And the word there, deeds, is ergon, work, that he had done. That's all he's going to do. He said, I'm not going to down here, come down here and try to teach something that I know you already know, but I'm just going to tell you what I did. So it's an interesting thing. Uh, that he does when going down, when talking to the Romans. Alright, 1 Corinthians 16.10 says, Now Timothy come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as also I do. And that's because the Corinthians were hard on everybody. They just knew, they knew it all. They didn't like Paul, they didn't like Timothy. They did like Titus, but Titus was the only one who really seemed to get along with them. But they, they were bad, bad actors, but they were also believers. I know everybody thinks, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to be really, really well liked and known and so forth. And nobody's going to speak evil of you, but certainly the Corinthians were tough on people who came to see them. So he tells him, go easy on Timothy. And Timothy went once. Timothy wouldn't go again. Paul tried to get him to go back at another time. He said, no, I don't think so. You know, they're on their own. <laughs> All right. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in prayers, remembering without ceasing your work. There's our word. Ergon of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. And then 1 Timothy 5.10 well reported of for good works, Ergon. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have received the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. An outstanding testimony. Alright, now we have Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work, Ergon, and labor of love, which ye have showed toward His name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Alright, then we have three terms brought together in Acts 2.22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, dunamis, and wonders, teros, and signs, say myon, which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves know. Alright, uh, again, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. So indeed they did fulfill again John's again 14.12. Alright, Acts 
3, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Now a crippled man from birth was being carried to the temple. That gate was called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg for those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And then, of course, they continued to do this even though they were instructed to stop it. And they went to jail. And they got out of jail and they continued to go. And you remember it was Peter said, Who am I going to obey, you or God? So they just kept kept doing miracles and miracles and miracles. So certainly they did just as Jesus said they would. Because they were numerous and the church grew. And they needed to jump start the church. So miracles were a way that was used of the Lord. Just as miracles were a way to verify that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. But when that which is perfect came, that which was in part went away. And that which is perfect is the Scripture, the New Testament, when it was published. Written first, of course, and then published. So now let's go to the purpose of miracles. Some tend to view miracles as isolated events, uh, of course, in the life first of Jesus, in the pro- uh, prophets first in Jesus, and then, of course, the apostles. But they always had a purpose. Every event in the life of a, of a believer has a definite purpose. And though we may not view it as such, it is a miracle. So miracles were not helter-skelter events. Miracles served to authenticate the message and the messenger of God at critical junctures in the development of the Hebrew slash Christian tradition. Remember the Bible was written by more than 40 men in four different languages over a 1600 year period. The writers lived more than 1400 miles apart and in most cases were not acquainted with one another. Then tyrants for centuries have tried to destroy and are discredited and yet it remains the word of God. So that is a miracle of unto itself. And we just put on the podcast a doctrine called the authenticity of the Bible. Which of course verifies it is authentic and we can trust it. And it's better than any other book written in terms of documented authenticity. All right, that we have the Word of God today then is, of course, a miracle. By all rights, the Bible should have been destroyed, and yet it is the most accurate book available from antiquity. Perhaps the greatest miracle of all was the miracle of creation, creation itself. Most objective scientists today no longer believe the earth evolved. I just finished a good book entitled 
the language of God by Francis Collins. And he is a renowned, uh, well, he's head of the National Institute of Health today. He's a medical doctor. He has a doctor in biology and he has a doctrine, a doctrine, a doctrine, a doctor of astrophysics. And he is the head of the genome project. He's generally considered to be the man who developed the human genome. And uh, he is a believer. And he wrote a book entitled The Language of God. New York Times bestseller. And I'm going to quote from him. He says, At the beginning of the 20th century, most scientists assumed a universe with no beginning and no end. This created certain physical paradoxes, such as how the universe managed to remain stable without collapsing upon itself because of the force of gravity. But other alternatives did not seem very attractive. When Einstein developed the theory of general relativity in 1916, he introduced a fudge factor to block gravitational implosion and retain the idea of a steady-state universe. He later reportedly called this, quote, the greatest mistake of my life, MC Square. He said, I'm goofed. I made a simple mathematical error, according to the New York Times, which used to be a great paper. All right, other theoretical formulations propose the alternative of continuing to quote now. Excuse my intervention there. Other theoretical formulations propose the alternative of a universe that had begun at a particular moment and then expanded to its present state, but it remained for experimental measurements to confirm this before most physicists were willing to consider that hypothesis seriously. Most physicists today agree that at one time all of the galaxies were one mass. Such must, I'm no longer quoting. I will resume quotation later. Most physicists today agree that at one time all of the galaxies were one mass. Such must have been an incredibly large mass that came from somewhere and then the Big Bang occurred. I know Dr. Collins also in his book says it must have been some kind of mass that was that he dates it 14 billion years ago. All of it. Huge mass. And then suddenly, kaboom, kaboom, it all went in different directions. Then in the book, and I don't know if I actually quoted it here, but in the book he says, and there was this one little place called Earth that seemed to be just sitting there waiting for us. And then I'm going to continue now to quote. Calculations from the book. Calculations suggest it, the Big Bang, happened approximately 14 billion years ago. And surprisingly, he uses carbon dating, which, of course, has some limitations if you consider the fact that the flood caused a big problem with carbon dating. But then he says, that's true, but we find rocks on the moon that carbon dating is accurate. And he comes to the 14 billion years ago. 
there are other ways, of course, of dating to confirm carbon dating. But it's the amount of carbon that leaves over a period of time leaches out into various other types of elements. All right, a particularly important documentation of the correction of this theory was provided rather accidentally by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson in 1965. Both of these I quote extensively in my Doctrine of Evolution, which can still be found on the Internet. All right, provided rather accidentally by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson in 1965 when they detected what appeared to be an annoying background of microwave signals regardless of where they pointed their new detector. After ruling all other possible causes, and then he has a humorous remark, including certain pigeons who were initially suspected of being the culprits, Penzias and Wilson ultimately realized that this background noise was coming from the universe itself and that it represented precisely the kind of afterglow that one would expect to find as a consequence of the Big Bang arising from the annihilation of matter and antimatter in the early moments of the exploding universe. Continuing to quote, Additional compelling evidence of the correctness of the Big Bang theory has been proved by the ratio of certain elements throughout the universe, particularly hydrogen, deuterium, and helium. The abundance of deuterium is remarkably constant from nearby stars to the farthest flung galaxies near our event horizon. That finding is consistent with all of the universe's deuterium having been formed at an unbelievably, or at, Um, unbelievably high temperatures in a single event during the Big Bang. Based on these and other observations, physicists are in agreement that the universe began as an infinitely dense, dimensionless point of pure energy. The laws of physics break down in this circumstance referred to as a singularity. The evidence of the Big Bang begs the question of what came before that and who or what was responsible. The consequences for theology are profound. And then he quotes something that I also had quoted from the New York Times in my Doctrine of Evolution. He quotes the fact that uh, when it's all over and there's this great mountain of information that physicists and astrophysicists and other technical experts have for years thought evolution caused everything. They're climbing up this mountain and they get to the top of this mountain and they look over the ledge and there he sees hundreds of theologians grinning like jackasses at him. And uh, uh, it's, it's an excellent book. I finished it and I gave it to Morgan to take a look at because he gets a, he gets a little technical for me in the book. But he is a very interesting individual. Alright, now let's go to Old Testament miracles. Whoa. Time to stop. Don't get over time. Don't get over time. Alright. We'll pick up Old Testament miracles next week. The Lord willing and the creek doesn't rise.
Okay, pray for our country, for goodness sake. Uh, Leave it with the Lord. It's difficult to do, but that's exactly what the children of Israel would not do. And uh, that's why Colonel Thiem always starts his doctrine of faith rest by going back to the book of Hebrews. And he says the faith rest is based upon trusting God the way the children of Israel didn't do. So the opposite of it is sitting down when you get to the Red Sea and you hear the clang of the chariots coming, you just sit there and relax. (laughs) And watch God do something for you. So I kind of feel like that today in our world today, in our country in particular. So uh, we'll just have to see because whatever it is, it's perfect. It's going to be perfect. Let's close her out with a prayer. Father, we are grateful for the fact that we can come to You directly and leave our, our problems with You because of what Jesus Christ did for us. On that cross, He gave us access to You. Help us to use that access properly to trust You. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.